Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number two, Leviticus, part two of the introduction to Leviticus. Well, last week we looked at some basics about Leviticus to set the stage for our study, and we're going to do that a little bit more this week. And before we get to the details of the burnt offering, which is the first subject of the first chapter of Leviticus, and a very specific type of the several types of sacrificial offerings, there's some principles that we need to address, and we're going to talk about them tonight. Now, some of these principles don't jump right out at us. Right? And in fact, they're not actually stated until we get into Numbers and then into Deuteronomy. But it's good to know them before we read Leviticus because then we're not making some assumptions about what's being said that turn out a little later to be false. Now, one of the most enlightening, yet least understood theological elements of the sacrificial system is this, and it's a little bit surprising. The Levitical sacrificial system that God gave to Israel did not have a remedy for all sins committed. That is, while the sacrificial system was primarily, though not entirely, established by Jehovah for the purpose of atonement of, of sins, not every sin could be atoned for. Okay? Not every sin could be covered by an animal sacrifice. Now, chew on that for just a moment. And think about the ramifications. Since Jesus Christ is said to be the fulfillment of that same sacrificial system. This, This concept is among the reasons why we today have these great theological debates between very reasonable, very knowledgeable, and godly men over whether or not all of our sins under every possible circumstance are covered by Yeshua's passion on the cross. Now, these debates are typically held under the title of eternal security. Or as a question that many a believer has wrestled with, can you lose your salvation? Now, since the Levitical sacrificial system did not provide atonement for some sins, but did for others, which was which? What sins could someone commit for which they could not turn to the sacrificial system to atone for them, to provide them with Jehovah's forgiveness? The Torah is very clear on this. Intentional sins, in general, cannot be atoned for. Now, sometimes we're going to see words used in the Bible to describe this category of sins, such as high-handed or great. The idea is that in this category of sin, there is no excuse for it in God's eyes. These are premeditated sins. These are deliberate sins. These sins involve denying either the truths of the Holy Scriptures 
or Yehovah's righteousness in pronouncing and enforcing these laws and ordinances that he gave to Moses. These were sins of out-and-out defiance against the king of the universe. They were planned. They were committed perhaps with gross negligence. That is, committing a sin that you fully knew was a serious sin, but you did it anyway. Nobody's ever done that, have you? Now, all that the sacrificial system atoned for was unintentional, non-high-handed sins. Now, we're going to slice that onion a little thinner as we go along, but for now, I'd just like to give you a couple of examples as to how the Torah classifies sins so that you get the bigger picture. Murder is an intentional and high-handed sin. Okay. While we may have this ongoing debate in America about whether any killing of a human being is murder, you know, like the death sentence for certain criminal acts or even death resulting from military combat, biblical law made it all pretty cut and dried for the Israelites. The killing of a human fell into two basic categories, justified or unjustified. Justified killing was not murder. Justified killing would be, for example, that you caught an unarmed thief in your house at night. You had no way to make a quick judgment as to the level of danger this this person posed to you and to your family, so you killed them. In the law of Torah, you were justified in killing because you were assumed to be protecting life. Yours, your guests, your families. But killing that same unarmed thief during the daylight hours when you reasonably could have discerned whether the thief was a known dangerous criminal or maybe whether or not he was armed is not justified. Taking his life in this case was only about protecting property. God does not allow that trade-off. Life for property. Any Hebrew would know this. Therefore, the unjustified killing was an intentional sin and it was not covered by sacrificial atonement. But the justified killing was not intentional and therefore was coverable by sacrificial atonement. Beginning to get the idea between intentional and unintentional? Another example. Adultery. If a married man had sex with a woman who was not his wife, this was an intentional sin. I can't think of a situation where that would have been an accident. (laughs) They both knew the law on this matter. Okay? Or should have known because the prohibition against adultery was common knowledge. It was not accidental. It wasn't a mistake. It certainly was not justifiable. Therefore, this was not covered by the sacrificial system. And atonement could not be made for this sin. That person was usually cut off, often executed for this sin. And by the way, execution, usually by stoning, was itself considered justifiable killing 
and therefore unintentional killing, and it was atoned for by using the sacrificial system when you had to execute somebody. So what happened to those who could not make sacrificial atonement for their sins? Because the sins they committed were classified as intentional. They were turned over to that other part of God's justice system, the curses of the law. Okay, That is, all unintentional sins could be remedied by a proper sacrifice. The sacrificial system atoned for that. This was a great blessing. Right? Because by God's grace, your sin could be atoned for. But no intentional sin could be covered by that sacrificial system. Now, it was a matter that you were under the curses of the law. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about law in some vague sense, some local criminal justice system. I'm talking about the biblical law as found in the Torah. Now, to be fair, some unintentional sins did require reparations in addition to a sacrifice if there was an injured party. For instance, if a man's donkey broke its leg in a hole that you had dug and failed to cover it up, you would have to make an animal sacrifice at the tabernacle because this was sinful, this was gross negligence, and you'd have to make reparation to that man for the loss of his donkey. But in doing so, you have both made peace with God and fairly compensated the injured party for your error. Now you're okay. Now please bear with me as we go through this. This is such an important principle to apprehend. Because it not only helps us understand the Old Testament Hebrew mindset, it will aid us wonderfully in understanding so much of what Paul was talking about and so many of his references to the law in his letters to all the various churches. Turn your Bibles to Numbers, Numbers 15. Numbers chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 27. We're going to read 27 through 30. Numbers 15, 27 through 30. If an individual sins by mistake, he is to offer a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. The Kohen, the priest will make atonement before Adonai for the person who makes a mistake by sinning inadvertently. He will make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. No matter whether he's a citizen of Israel or a foreigner living with them, you're to have one law for whoever it is that does something wrong by a mistake. But, an individual who does something wrong intentionally, whether a citizen or a foreigner, is blaspheming Adonai that person will be cut off from his people. All right. This is a great example of what is called the curse.
curse of the law. Okay? Now, if you ever wondered why so many pastors and teachers and church leaders prefer not to teach and really even have you read this Old Testament passage, all right, rather the Old Testament, this passage certainly tops this list. Because this statement, when trying to fit it in with our modern day doctrines, is a real thorny theological problem. Because even though most modern pastors aren't too familiar with the Old Testament, they would unhesitatingly agree with the statement that Jesus satisfied all the requirements of the sacrificial system. We've all heard that from the pulpit. Probably everyone in this room would agree with that statement as well. But, what sacrificial system are we talking about here? Okay, That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice once and for all, and is an authorized substitute for all those prescribed animal deaths that were used to atone for sins within the biblical sacrificial system as found in Leviticus. This is absolutely accurate. Those pastors and I would have no problem with that. But what do we do about this stark reality that God plainly said that now that you know what is right and wrong in my eyes, to intentionally do wrong is to sin against me, to blaspheme against me. And for that you will be cut off and there is no Atonement for that sin. It will stay with you forever. Wow. Okay. This is a much more difficult issue when we actually examine the sacrificial system than when we're kind of blissfully ignorant of it. Alright? And just kind of assume some things about it that aren't so. That is, when we look at the actual words of the Bible in context and not just accept a greatly distilled an unquestioned doctrine that fits kind of a predetermined agenda. Now, bear with me. I know some of you are probably getting uncomfortable with this right about now, all right, and may think you know where I'm headed, and you're probably wrong. All right, so hang in there. The Hebrews knew they had a big problem here. Okay, the Torah simply does not provide a way for an Israelite to reconcile with God once that Israelite commits a high-handed or a great sin. So in time, the writers of the Jewish traditions took over. You can read of all kinds of remedies for this seemingly insolvable problem in the Talmud. Now, after all, who wants to commit one of these high-handed sins and then go through life knowing that your fate is inescapable? Okay. The great sages and rabbis made some sweeping, sweeping pronouncements that ranged from saying that the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was what covered intentional sins, even some cases saying that doing good deeds and or showing heartfelt repentance covered intentional sins. Some said that being sorry enough or studying scripture enough or doing an enormous act of repentance or a fabulous good deed could even almost magically turn that intentional sin into a deed that actually had merit in God's eyes. Of course, none of that's in the Holy Scriptures. 
Okay? But this just highlights what a serious problem intentional sin is. And how these Hebrew religious authorities would go to such great lengths to conjure up these tortured procedures on how to rid themselves of this rejection of God due to their commission of an intentional sin. Let me put this in modern terms. What we call the unforgivable sin, they called the intentional sin. Okay? Because generally speaking, this was a sin that had no available means of atonement. Therefore, they remained unforgiven indefinitely. Well, back in Exodus, we started reading about the first of a series of laws given to Israel, which began with the Ten Commandments. And in Hebrew thinking, there's really no difference between religious law and civil law. They're, they're one and the same. The religious biblical law was the civil law. The biblical law was all the law that the Hebrew society lived under, at least when they were governing themselves. They would have laughed at our questionable Western concept of separation of church and state. Okay. We learned of laws in Exodus prescribing immediate death for adulterers and murderers and idolaters and of other laws that even prescribed death for gross negligence in certain cases. Okay. Some laws dealt with property and therefore they mainly involved reparations when wrongdoing was done. Someone discovered to be a thief wasn't jailed. Instead, they had to make reparations to the person they stole from. Okay? And these reparations always involve giving back well more than what they took. Okay? These, there were laws that covered accidental injuries to people and animals, and, and, and the remedy for these typically involved reparations. If you wouldn't or couldn't make the required reparations, your life was turned over to the person who had been harmed or suffered loss more or less as a slave until you worked off that debt to him. These sorts of issues and their remedies and their punishments are all covered in the biblical law. So a good way for us to understand the justice system of God, the one that he set up for Israel, is to think of it as consisting of two primary components the law, and the sacrificial system. Now, a Hebrew would argue with me a little bit about what I just said on technical merits, and they'd be correct. Right? Because technically, the sacrificial system is contained within the law as part of the law. Right? At least in the common way of speaking. But the functional way that the biblical justice system operated also made the law and the sacrificial system as somewhat separate and used for different, nearly opposite purposes. Okay. Sometime ago, back in Exodus, we went into great detail about God's justice, which in Hebrew is called mishpat. Okay. The law isn't all of God's justice, it's just part of God's justice. 
Okay? The law had a role to play in God's justice system, just as the sacrificial system had a role to play in God's justice system. One foundational principle underlying God's justice system is quite similar to our American legal system, okay? whereby we declare some crimes less serious than others, and so we classify the offenses um, accordingly. And, and, and we have different processes of how we deal with the less serious versus the more serious. We generally classify the less serious crimes as misdemeanors, the more serious as felonies. Okay. To make an analogy, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it's close enough to make the point, the sacrificial system atoned for misdemeanors, but not for felonies. Okay, don't take that too literally. Just giving you a, a word picture here. Okay. God in his justice system defined a misdemeanor, if you would, as an unintentional sin. A felony as an intentional sin. Now, whereas we believers today want to classify sins according to big ones and little ones. That's our approach. You know, real bad ones, not so bad ones. Little one, you know, is like cheating on your taxes. A big one's robbing a bank. You know, an even bigger one, of course, premeditated murder. Seems that God begins by classifying sins as either unintentional or deliberate little different approach. Now we have to remember that all crime among the Hebrews was considered sin. Everything a Hebrew did wrong was first and foremost an offense to God. And the Old Testament Hebrews saw it that way. Certainly the doing of wrong often and usually manifested itself in the form of of somebody doing harm against somebody else. But the key is that all right and therefore all wrong was defined by God. So in all cases, wrongdoing of any kind among Israelite society was a violation of God's laws. So every wrong was a sin. Now let me be very clear before we ever start to read Leviticus. The sacrificial system's purpose was not to extract a penalty from the wrongdoer. Okay. The sacrificial system was not this escalating system of penalty fees or fines in the form of a more or less valuable animal, the choice of which depended on just how bad your offense was. Okay. The idea was not so much that the bigger the sin, the bigger and more expensive the animal that you had to give up. Okay. You didn't pay a dove for a little baby sin all right, and a bull for a really bad one. That isn't how it worked. Okay. The sacrificial system was there to maintain your relationship with God and to repair it if it got broken as a result of your sin. Okay. It was there to benefit the sinner far more than to appease God. Okay. And whatever form the appeasement to God was to be, it was not about paying him off. Okay. It was about obedience. 
It was about reconciliation within his system of justice so that you could have your relationship with him restored. Let me put it another way. And please pay, pay close attention because it may change the way you've ever looked at the law. Okay. The sacrificial system represented, if you would, the blessings part of the law. And the curses of the law represented the punishment part of the law. Okay. If an Israelite sinned unintentionally, he could always turn to the sacrificial system that is going to be laid out in detail for us in Leviticus. And he would be reconciled with God. Okay? Is that not exactly what we believers in Yeshua rely on every day? Okay? When we sin, we turn to the sacrifice of Jesus as our way out. Okay? If in committing a sin a person did harm to another person either financially or bodily, then some reparation to that harmed person was usually prescribed together with the appropriate animal sacrifice at the tabernacle as reparations to God. Because remember, every wrong we do against somebody else is first and foremost a wrong to him. Okay. Further, forgiveness, real forgiveness, not some inferior kind. Atonement was achieved. Peace with God was restored to the wrongdoer, the sinner, through the indispensable sacrificial system that was the agent of atonement. They were blessed by this process rather than punished. We're going to read over and over as we go through the sacrificial system here in Leviticus where God will say, okay, I want you to go do this and this, thus and so, period of purification, um, now this animal sacrifice, and you will be forgiven. You were forgiven. However, if somebody sinned intentionally, high-handedly, they couldn't go to the sacrificial system and gain re reconciliation with God. Instead, they were to be dealt with under the curses of the law. Instead of being under the blessing and grace of the sacrificial system, they were put under the punishment, the curse of the law. Let me state that again. The sacrificial system of Moses was based entirely on grace. It was the animal that lost its life in God's justice system rather than the person who committed the sin. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. The curses of the law, though, were different. And when a sin of that type was committed, it required a punishment under the law. Although Hebrews usually didn't lose their physical lives, but sometimes they did. They did lose their relationship with God and there was really no defined method to ever regain it. This was a terrifying possibility that every Hebrew faced every day of his life. I mean, did an Israelite honestly think that he was going to go his entire life and never once intentionally break one of God's laws? Never once have a bad day and deliberately sin 
The sad reality is that as much inner enjoyment as too many of us get in looking back at those stiff-necked Hebrews who tended to wander off in idolatry from time to time and then comparing them to ourselves who would never do such a foolish thing like that, right? those Hebrew sins were almost always unintentional. Okay. They worked like mad never to sin. How about us? We're almost the exact opposite. Okay. Church doctrine and tradition has led us to the point that we hardly ever, if ever, consider unintentional sin. Our view is that if we didn't mean it, or if we didn't recognize it, then there's nothing to it. As a matter of fact, it's almost not a sin if you didn't know you were being disobedient. You know, ignorance of the law is an excuse, and it can actually be to our advantage. Okay? And yet it was precisely this kind of sin, the unintended sin, that the sacrificial system was designed to accommodate. It was unintentional sins for which millions, probably billions, of God's animals were put to death to atone for things men did. Things they gave little thought to. Now, almost all of the sins that we modern believers currently think of as kind of the everyday variety of sin actually falls into the biblical category of deliberate and intentional. Do you know that? We meant to do it even though later we might regret it. We know it's wrong. We do it anyway. Okay? We know it's an offense to God, but we choose to consider the consequences later. Okay? When we have sin to confess to God, it is usually, by the biblical definition, an intentional sin that we're confessing. The Levitical sacrificial system didn't even cover that kind of sin. Now, since the sacrificial system of the Bible only covers sins that weren't intended, and if Jesus fulfilled only that system, where does that leave us most of the time when our sins are deliberate? Well, here's the good news. Just to help demonstrate how Paul saw Christ as fulfilling more than the Levitical sacrificial system, with all its definitions of what it could and could not atone for, we only have to look at Romans 3.25. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read it for you. It's going to sound familiar. Since all have sinned and come short of earning God's praise, by God's grace, without earning it, all are granted the status of being considered righteous before Him. Through the act redeeming us from our enslavement to sin that was accomplished by the Messiah Yeshua. God put Yeshua forward as a kapara for sin through his faithfulness in respect to his bloody sacrificial death. Now, what did Paul just say here? First, understand that where my Bible has the word kapara, Yours just may say mercy seat or sacrifice of atonement, some such thing. Kapara is Hebrew for atonement. 
Okay, but in the Greek, which of course is what where it was the original language it appears of the New Testament, the word used was helisterion, helisterion, which is used in only two other places in the New Testament, and most times it's referring to the mercy seat, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. So it's not wrong to translate this as atonement, but when we realize that it is more referring directly to the most important furnishing and the most important location of the tabernacle, which is central to the sacrificial system, then we see how thoroughly tied together the Levitical sacrificial system in Jesus Christ is. But that's not even fully representative of what it is that Yeshua fulfilled. Now, a key phrase in the verses we just read was enslavement to sin. That phrase, or others that are very similar, have always received much attention among believers. But if we'll apply what we've learned today, that once a Hebrew committed an intentional sin, there was no hope for atonement for him. It lends new meaning to the words enslaved to sin. Commit an intentional sin, and indeed you are its slave forever. There is no escape from an intentional sin under the Levitical sacrificial system. This is closer to the meaning it had to Paul. Because by the Hebrew thinking of that day, it was intentional sins that were the problem. Because those hung over your head forever. I mean, you weren't a slave to unintentional sins, but only to intentional sins. Because the sacrificial system, as it existed from Moses' day forward, was fully capable of dealing with the unintentional sins that Hebrews committed. Notice the first portion of our Romans 3 scripture that we just read. It says that because not one person has ever gone his lifetime without sinning, that by God's grace there is now a method by which all sins can be atoned for. To Paul, it was obvious that Messiah did something more than what the Levitical sacrificial system was capable of doing. And what Christ could do was to atone for intentional sins in our lives as well as the unintentional. See, you now have a good idea of the basic principles of the justice system, the mishpat, that the Israelites lived under. It's no wonder that over the centuries the Hebrew scribes and sages and rabbis eventually developed a whole lot of tradition to try and deal with the inflexibility and seeming harshness of such a system that had absolutely no remedy for intentional sins. And those traditions they developed in too many cases simply overturned God's ways and replaced them with man's ways because it better fit with their evolving philosophies of life and fairness and justice and their need to get rid of their guilt. They ignored that God had a purpose for this system of laws and sacrifices that did not have a way to atone for every type of sin. 
And that the prophets, the prophets told them a remedy for their predicament was on the way. Just trust in it. And it was going to be provided by God himself. And it was going to be in the person of Messiah. Now it helps us to understand why the more educated an Israelite was and realize that in Bible times higher education was only religious education. Okay. The more educated an Israelite was, the more strict he was, generally speaking. And he demanded that those around him follow the law. All right? And he was scrupulous on following the law himself. Because better than most, that educated man understood the very limited ability of the sacrificial system to atone for his sins. That is, what it could atone for and what it couldn't. Okay? But also look at this burden that every Israelite carried. One careless, rash moment could carry with it an eternal sentence. Commit a sin that the sacrificial system was not built to atone for and beyond the criminal punishment you might receive from the law, you are now at war with God forever. Since the only way in God's justice system to atone and be forgiven was an animal sacrifice within the context of the sacrificial system protocols, but what you did wasn't covered in that system, well, you were done for. Get in the picture? This, of course, was the world that Paul and all of the Jews in Christ's day lived in. This was the world that the Hebrews of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, lived in. Paul, as this highly positioned Pharisee, very educated man, understood the realities of God's justice system to a degree that the common folk didn't. It was his profession to contemplate this difficult reality day and night. Imagine the mental energy necessary to try to control your wills so thoroughly as to never in your lifetime commit even one deliberate sin. The effort must have been exhausting. Okay? But the failure to avoid such a kind of sin was so terrible that not to work yourself to exhaustion to avoid it was unthinkable. Okay? The common folk to a degree, understood their situation. But you know, they had lives to live, mouths to feed. Most of them didn't go to bed at night and then wake up in the morning and re-examine their position with God. For Paul, as with all the other Pharisees, however, it was the center of all their thoughts, day and night. You see, when Paul and other Pharisees went around strong-arming fellow Jews... It wasn't only followers of Jesus who they were accusing of crimes and were arresting. It was everyday traditional Jews. Because primarily, what what Paul's job was, or at least he seemed to take the greatest delight in it, was to look for Jews who had committed intentional sins. Because that person was now going to be dealt with harshly. 
that person was now going to be under the curses of the law. And how many times have you read and heard that expression in the New Testament, in Paul's letters? Okay. That person was now out of fellowship with God. He was subject to punishment. This was the system Judaism operated in, in biblical times. Now, with that as a perspective, is it no wonder that the saved Paul came to use such harsh words when describing the Levitical sacrificial system and the law in comparison to Christ? For in fact, what made Christ's blood so precious to Paul was that it did cover sins that were intentional. You see, even though Christ is often described as our high priest, he's not the type of high priest that Aaron was. He's more than the high priesthood stated, started by Aaron. He's actually closer in type to what Moses was. The Bible tells us that the Messiah will even be after the order of Melchizedek, who was both king and priest. Even though Yeshua provided the once and for all sacrifice that had formerly been the purpose of the Levitical sacrificial system, he was more than what that system could provide. He also provided what the Passover provided. And that was the key. Let me explain. The Passover sacrifice wasn't really part of the law per se, or even part of the general sacrificial system. It actually came before that. The biblical feasts, even though contained within a body of scripture that is loosely called the law, generally functioned somewhat separately and it had different purposes than the laws of do's and don'ts. The Passover sacrifice is a good case in point. Okay? It was not about atoning for sins. Okay? The Passover sacrifice was originally established as a means of protecting you from death. The lamb's blood was smeared on doorposts in Egypt so that God's wrath, his hand of death, would not come to the homes of his people and kill the firstborn sons. See, when the Israelites celebrated Passover, it was for them a remembrance, a memorial holiday to recall God freeing them from Egypt, protecting them from death. It wasn't about atonement of sin. Of course, it had a much deeper significance that they certainly didn't comprehend at the time. It was a foreshadowing of Christ's death on the cross. Okay? But the sacrifice of the Passover lamb really had nothing to do with the sacrificial system whose job it was to make peace with God by means of atonement. Okay? When Yeshua died on that cross, at least two things were accomplished that directly affects us. One, he paid the price with his blood for our sins. He atoned for our sins, intentional and unintentional. Two, as the Passover lamb, his blood marked us to be passed over for the eternal death. Spiritual death. 
which the Bible describes as first and foremost eternal separation from God. Further, what infuriated the Jewish religious authorities about Jesus, even beyond his claim of being the Messiah, was that during the time of his ministry, he was running around giving divine forgiveness to people who had committed intentional sins. Whoa! Jesus was pronouncing that the person who put their trust in him could achieve reconciliation with God even after committing an intentional sin. My gosh! Even the sacrificial system, the holiest, most blessed, gracious, powerful part of the entire Hebrew justice system couldn't do that. So as we move along through Leviticus, keep that perspective in mind. Okay? Nothing in the sacrificial system that we're about to study will atone for an intentional sin. And if, as you have occasion to read Paul's books in the New Testament, try to grasp just how inferior the sacrificial part of the law must have seemed to him once he comprehended what Yeshua's death had accomplished. Paul never says the law is obsolete or dead. He only says that compared to Christ, the law, particularly the sacrificial portion, is as nothing. Amen, brother. Okay? That by faith in Christ, you are now subject to God's grace when you intentionally sin, instead of subject to the curses of the law when you intentionally sin. And that's just too wonderful for words. Okay? You can be sure that while Paul is awestruck at how Yeshua can provide for forgiveness of sins, that what he was thinking about, what was in the forefront of his mind, was intentional sins. Because Paul took it for granted that unintentional sins could be forgiven. They had always been able to be forgiven by means of a proper animal sacrifice since the days of Moses. That was a done deal. Okay. Also keep in mind that Paul never compared the ability of Christ to forgive against the law's failure in that same area. Look, the law never failed in forgiveness because it was never designed to forgive or atone. Every Jewish child knew that much. But guess what? The sacrificial system did provide a means of forgiveness, but it was limited to unintentional sins. Now, as an analogy of the law, when compared to the incredible flying ability of eagles, are elephants failures? Hmm? Of course not. Elephants don't fail to fly because they weren't ever built to fly. The law portion of God's justice system was not designed to atone or forgive, but to draw a line between obedience to God and disobedience to God. The law established moral choices for humankind. And in doing so, it showed us what sin is. The sacrificial system, on the other hand, was designed 
to achieve forgiveness by means of atonement. But the sacrificial system had its limits. It could only deal with a certain class of sin and then only on a case-by-case basis. Both systems, both parts of God's justice system did what they were designed to do perfectly. Okay. Now, using all that I just told you is the lens through which to view Leviticus next week we're going to take a look at that very first type of sacrifice addressed in chapter 1, which is the burnt offering. And we're going to discover exactly what it was intended to accomplish. Okay, we'll see you next time.